Welcome to Hunting Influence, a podcast by Influence Hunter. We share stories from those that have it and those that leverage it to help you develop what we believe could be the most important skill in business right now, influence. I'm your host, Aaron Kostinets. I'm here today with serial entrepreneur, Youssef Kawaj. Youssef is an expert in both running Amazon companies and in the world of influencer marketing. His company, Be Easy Social, has worked with industry leaders such as Canva. Youssef and I have gotten to know each other quite well over the past year and constantly talk to just bounce around different influencer marketing ideas off of each other. Youssef, it is a pleasure to finally have you on. Thank you, my man. It's a pleasure to be on, you know, the number one business podcast in the world. The honor's all mine. <laughs> Get in there. Um, <laughs> so I wanted to start this off with kind of the setting the scene and learning a little bit more about you. So tell us, how did you get started on your entrepreneurial journey? Were you starting businesses as a kid? What did that kind of look like for you? For sure, man. So honestly, that didn't really start till later in life. So my parents were entrepreneurs. They would buy bars and flip them. And they kind of did that my entire life. But while they were doing that, they'd always kind of shove down my throat, like, don't do this. You work too much for too little. It's not worth it. So all through school, I wanted to work just a regular nine to five, go to college, you know, the regular route. And then around a year or so after I graduated, I was working at a phone store and I had a buddy that was getting into network marketing. So he's working with Amway, Worldwide Dream Builders. And he gave me a Robert Kiyosaki book called Business of the 21st Century. So I read that while I'm sitting in this store, you know, waiting for people to come in, selling phones. And it just kind of instantly changed my perspective. I'm not going to lie. I can't even tell you really what I read. I just know that was kind of the pivot point of when I was like, okay, I definitely shouldn't go the route I was just going down. I should kind of pivot and go in a different direction. So I started kind of getting introduced to the network marketing realm through him and meeting some people that had a different kind of mindset than what I was used to. And yeah, that just kind of was the entryway into the whole world of entrepreneurship, even though I was introduced to it at a young age. So definitely subconsciously, it was in my mind. But because my parents were so against me going the route that they did, it just kind of took me a little longer to get there. So that's really interesting you say that. I don't know if I've heard that before. I hear a lot of people say, you know, my parents were entrepreneurs. And I was exposed to it at a young age and made me want to do it. So what was it that made them tell you not to do it? Because like they were making their own living, setting their own hours. Why would they push you away from that? I mean, that's a good question, man. I think they were just working so much. And to be honest, they were entrepreneurs together. So they ran companies together. And I think on my dad's side, He's the one who originally started the companies and then him and my mom got married and then she kind of was brought into the business realm and then she was helping run the companies. But mostly that kind of negative talk towards entrepreneurship was from her. So I think that she wasn't very happy doing what she was doing, didn't like the long hours, didn't like just the things that come along with entrepreneurship. I feel like for her, it wasn't really a choice. It was kind of just something she was thrown into, which is maybe why. I'm not going to lie. I haven't really thought about this. This is just off the top of my head right now. So you wrote it off early. You're working for this phone company and all yeah. of a sudden something clicks. So what was next steps for you? What was the what was the first entrepreneurial experience for you right after that? So the first entrepreneurial experience, I was in business school and I started doing some research on how to make money online. This was back in 2016. And yeah, I came across drop shipping. I found this course from a guy named Mike Vistil. It was $7, decided to invest in it. And then I launched my first drop shipping store, which was, what was it called? It's called 96 Club. It was for people born in the year 1996. And it was like a clothing store. And then I started learning how to run Facebook ads, running the store. I didn't get one sale at all, but it was definitely... <laughs> a great learning experience and an introduction into the entire industry. And was this while you were at the phone company? By the way, I would I would be a customer since I was born in 1996. So <laughs> it's a shame you never found Let's me. go. <laughs> no, so I quit the phone company to go to business school after kind of learning about business and entrepreneurship. I thought it would kind of give me 
a little more knowledge on the entire topic. And then while I was in school, I just kind of realized what they were talking about was very outdated. It didn't make any sense. They were showing us how to run ads for radios, radio television (laughs) shows. And it just didn't make sense to me knowing that social media was where it was at. So I just started doing my own research. And then that's kind of when I came across dropshipping while I was in school. Started that store, went absolutely nowhere, but it definitely gave me some invaluable knowledge and at least a footstep into the the industry. I mean, when you're doing it at this at a young age, you really can't go wrong because you're either successful or you learn and and both are super valuable. So after 96 Club, what was was the next kind of hustle that you, you started from there? Yeah, so after 96 Club... I'm not going to lie. I tried a few other things. I tried flipping stuff on like eBay, Kijiji. I then tried, what was it? Investing in penny stocks with this guy named Tim Sykes. I saw his YouTube videos. I was trying a bunch of stuff. And then I came across this guy named Kevin David. And he had a course on how to sell products on Amazon, getting them from China, importing them and selling them through Amazon. It was called Amazon FBA. So fulfillment by Amazon. So you send products into warehouses and Amazon kind of handles the rest. So I came across him selling a course. It was $1,300, which is pretty much all the money I had at the time. Decided to invest in it. And that was the next kind of business I started. And that went a lot differently than the first one. So I've actually seen this guy too. I've seen him talk. I never invested in it, but I'd love to know a little bit more about the course. And then, you know, how did you implement your learnings? Were you still in school at this time too? No. So after, because this was in the summer. So I started the dropshipping store in February. I was still in school. Semester ended April. I'm trying out these new kind of side hustle hobbies. And then in August, I found his course and I decided to just go all in on it and not go back to school and just do this instead. So ran it by the parents because they at the time were paying for school. Wanted to make sure they were cool with it. And yeah, they kind of gave me the okay. I was living at home at the time and I bought the course. And so in the course, it just kind of taught you how to go from knowing nothing about selling on Amazon to kind of being a quote unquote expert. There's, there was a lot of missing pieces in there, but it definitely took you from not knowing much to almost being an expert in the topic. So everything from how to set up an LLC, how to set up a business bank account, how to sign up on Amazon Seller Central, how to start a brand or a company, a trademark, how to find suppliers in China, get products manufactured, get them inspected, get them shipped out to Amazon warehouses, how to handle freight forwarders in between the entire... So pretty much from A to Z, just how to start an Amazon FBA business. And what were the products that you were selling there? Yeah, so... It took me from, I guess I bought the course in August, September, October, November. November, I launched my first product and I launched it on November 17th. So it took me around three months to launch my first product. My first product was, it was kind of like a fad product at the time. It was these jumbo squishy toys for kids. It was just like PU foam that was, it's pretty much like a stress ball, but they were just like shaped in unicorns and all these like cool kind of characters for kids. So I did some product research, found out that there was these three individual squishies that were selling really good, but they weren't bundled together. They were just different sellers selling them. So like using the seller tools and stuff that I learned in the course, I kind of figured out that these three were selling great, decided to differentiate myself by bundling them together and sold the three best sellers as a bundle because nobody was doing that. And yeah, first day out the gate, I think I did $1,300 or $1,400 in sales. And it just it skyrocketed from the first day. Honestly, it was lucky. That was complete luck. And was this your most successful product you ever did? How many of these, yeah. how many of these did you sell? So in the first... I don't remember the units I sold. I just remember the numbers I did. So like the first from November 17th to January 1st, I did close to $35,000, in sales. And that was the first month. And that's literally me coming from working a part-time job, making $700 every two weeks to all of a sudden in this one month in revenue, I did $36,000. It was unfathomable at the time. And I didn't even know what to do with the money. I was definitely having a lot of fun. So how did you then decide to stop and get into influencer marketing? It sounds like you were crushing it. Was this just like a one, you, 
you found the perfect niche and couldn't replicate it? Or what did this kind of look like? I mean, there's definitely luck involved, man. And like I was doing it, my product launched in Q4, which is the highest sales velocity of the entire year for e-com brands and products on Amazon. So sales were definitely heightened by probably 10x. So what ended up happening was I placed not a huge order, but a small order to kind of test it. We sold out of the product in the first five days, placed a little bit of a bigger order. We sold out by January 1st. And me just being brand new into the industry, not really realizing that this is Q4 and sales are 10x right now, I placed a ginormous order that I could barely even afford, that I even had to use some credit on top of the profits and everything that I had made to even place this order. And then sales obviously... January, February are not nearly as high. And I have all these units sitting in factories in China, sitting, some are sitting in the warehouse on Amazon. And I just wasn't selling fast enough. So then after that, decided to launch another product. It totally flopped, didn't go very well. And then I just had all these units that I'm slowly selling out of throughout the year. And then come next Q4, I was like, all right, clearly Q4 is where the sales velocity is at. So I launched three seasonal products that were strictly for Christmas, ended up doing like another $36,000, $40,000 month, but ordered once again, way too many. The whole logistics of the business is kind of what screwed me over. I just couldn't get the amount of inventory down with how much sales velocity was based on months and holidays. I'd always be selling out or have way too much. So pretty much all my units for that first product sold out a year after I had bought them. And the products that I had launched that Q4 pretty much sold out, but I still had a decent amount in inventory. And honestly, I wasn't enjoying it anymore. It was stressing me out. It wasn't fun. So I just decided to dispose of my inventory, even though like that year did over $100,000 in revenue and just kind of pivot towards something that didn't focus on inventory and the whole logistical back end of the business. And that kind of led me into social media marketing as a service. Got it. So it was the whole inventory and supply chain part of it that really threw you off and and made you not want to do it anymore. And before we get into social media marketing, do you still have any Amazon side hustles or did you just end that relationship forever? Yeah, no. No Amazon products currently to date. After disposing of inventory, closing my Seller Central account. I've totally taken a step back from that. Not saying I won't ever dip my feet back in and possibly launch another brand. But as of right now, that's definitely not my focus. Got it. So how long was the transition between Amazon seller to Be Easy Social? And before you started Be Easy Social, was there anything else that you thought besides influencer marketing that you wanted to get into? Or was that just fascinating to you right off the top? Yeah, no. So I didn't even want to get into influencer marketing or even know really what influencer marketing was. So when I first started my social media marketing, I just started doing Facebook ads, kind of like everybody else offering social media posting as a service. So I ended up closing a local construction company as my first Facebook ads client. And I was running it with them for three or four months until I landed my second client, which was just strictly social media posting. I'm just, I hired a graphic designer And he would just post, I would write the copy for the Instagram, Facebook posts. And that was pretty much my only two services I was offering at the beginning. And then I had a client call with someone who wanted to bring me on as a social media content creator. And we just got to talking and he was talking about how he had this freelance position for an influencer marketing type role where I would just be communicating with influencers closing deals for promotions. I didn't really know what it was about at the time, but sounded interesting. I also needed some cash to pay the bills. So I was like, yeah, you know what? I'll try it out. And then I tried it out and just ended up falling in love with influencer marketing as a whole. And so just so I got a general timeline, when was this? Was was this end of Okay, yeah. So this was like year-wise, I'm trying to think like 2018. This was 2018. And I didn't start Be Easy Social until around a year ago. So there's a decent gap in between where before I started Be Easy Social or the agency, anything like that, I was just doing a lot of contract freelance work for a year or so. So tell me about this first campaign that you ran in influencer marketing. 
how did that go? And, and when did you know that like you love this? Yeah. So first campaign I ran, I uh, don't know if I can say the brand. So, you know, I'll just keep their name out of my mouth, but it was, I had a decent budget to work with. It was $10,000 a month, first campaign I've ever ran. And it wasn't even a campaign in general. It was just kind of managing their influencer promotions month after month because this is marketing. They just had ongoing. So it was just me reaching out to people in the urban community, hip hop kind of niche, and just closing deals with YouTubers, getting some ad integrations on their channels. And I didn't have any backend data to work with at the time. I just had a trackable URL that I could see website clicks and all that. But as for sales and conversions, they didn't give me any access to that the entire time I even worked with that client. So I could only see front-end data. But yeah, it was definitely cool being tossed in to the industry and having a budget like $10,000 a month to work with. So it kind of felt normal when I left that client. But as you know, and I know, going to work with new clients, like not everybody has that type of budget to be thrown around. That's crazy. Someone who's never done this before, you throw them into the fire with 10K per month. That's- I know. That's a, like, well, at the time, I just thought it was normal and okay, this is probably a small budget. You know, this is what people are working with. But then, yeah, as I came to find out, like, that's, that's very lucky that I ended up coming across that client. He had the trust and kind of confidence in me to be able to get the job done. And, and I kind of owe them everything that I've, I've learned in the industry. That's awesome. So take me through what it looked like transitioning from you're doing all these freelance gigs to, you know, taking the leap and starting your own agency. Yeah. So I just got to the point where like I was having so many clients reach out, so many people wanting to work with me and I just couldn't handle the client load that I was currently being tossed to me. So I just started slowly building a team and through slowly building a team, it just got to a point where... I just didn't even want to act as I was a contractor or freelancer anymore. I just wanted to incorporate, create a company, and then kind of just run everything through that, build a team and just a cool company environment that we could run cool, fun influencer marketing campaigns through. So it, it came out of desperation because I couldn't handle the amount of work that was being thrown at me. Got it. So you were just getting so much requests. You're like, I can't just make this like a freelance thing anymore. Like I need to make this more legitimate. So how did that work exactly? How did things change from being freelance to owning your own agency right at the start? What did that look like? It wasn't really different because I already had a small team, but the people just weren't aware of the team. So the only dynamic that kind of changed was the sales calls where it wasn't, I'm pitching myself anymore. I'm pitching my company and my team. And it wasn't, I'm not trying to get them to trust me so much anymore, as in I want them to trust my entire agency. So I don't know, the sales calls dynamic changed a little bit. But other than that, like I said, because I was kind of running a small team in the background that nobody really knew about, it was just kind of shining a spotlight on them is the only thing that changed. Got it. So nothing really changed other than you didn't have to be secretive that this wasn't just you. Um, Exactly. You could really sell it as an agency and not just working with you, Seth. So what were you doing at the time to get customers? Yeah, so LinkedIn, a little bit at the beginning, but not really. Reaching out to people on social media organically, just offering them advice, tips. And then my main bread and butter was honestly, even with the agency, still coming through Upwork. I built up a freelance profile that was high up in the keyword rankings for the services I offered. So generally, I'd get three to four requests a day from companies wanting to work with me. So I'm lucky that way that I built that up as a freelancer because even till this day, I get four to five requests daily of companies wanting to work with me. So yeah, it was a great option starting there. Yeah, I I actually don't think that's lucky at all. I think it's really smart because I think a lot of entrepreneurs are too proud to try and do it because it's associated with like lower cost campaigns. Mm-hmm. Like I personally started off doing Fiverr, which many people associate with really, really cheap campaigns, which they were. Like I got clients for $10, $100, $200, but it's how you learn, right? So, so how were the quality of people who were reaching out to you through Upwork? Yeah, I mean, 
I guess quality is kind of a vague term. Like, I mean, if we're talking about bigger budgets and clients that I would want to work with that actually had money to spend, I'd say it's around 30% of the people that reach out actually have some big budgets and have something that we can work with. And I guess if we're talking about quality as well, like some people reaching out with brand new drop shipping stores happens as well. I'm not willing to work with companies like that as well. But yeah, I would say around 30%, one in three companies that reach out are probably quality, good, good, good quality. That's great though. So 30% are qualified leads and you're getting four people reaching out a day. That means pretty much every single day you would exactly. get someone qualified reaching out to you. Absolutely. And like, I'm just talking about people reaching out and this is not even me reaching out on Upwork as a platform as well. So like when I did have that dialed in and I was reaching out, let's double that number of like, now I'm talking to eight new companies a day. So that's unbelievable. That's so interesting. You're the first person I've ever talked to that really can grow an agency through Upwork specifically. So it's super interesting here. I want to talk a little bit more to you about you know, some of the campaigns that you ran and, and the influencer marketing industry as a whole, since it's something we're obviously both super involved in. So tell sure. me a little bit about what the Easy Social was doing exactly like. What did a campaign look like for you? Yeah, so specifically, we're running paid influencer campaigns. So budgets on the minimum side of $10,000 a month. I worked with clients with budgets as high as $300,000 a month. So specifically what campaigns would kind of look like would be us kind of getting whatever client, the client's KPIs were, whether that's brand awareness, conversions, traffic, and then kind of taking that information, finding influencers, obviously that would fit the brand and the entire messaging, reach out to them, close some deals with them or their management team, pay them a lump sum of cash using the budget the client's providing. And then specifically, we were working with Instagram story campaigns, some Instagram posts, and YouTube ad integrations were our bread and butter for influencer campaigns. And how did you decide on that as your bread and butter? Did you try everything out first and then go there? Or did, was that just what you were dead set on, on being your focus for the agency? No, that was definitely through testing. I've tested a lot of Instagram posts and I've never really seen amazing results from it. I mean, if you're running a brand awareness campaign, cool. Definitely pay some influencers to create some content and share it, obviously. But if you're looking for conversions and website traffic, I've just found through testing and the amounts I've spent with companies that Instagram stories and YouTube ad integrations have proven to work the best time after time. Snapchat stories as well do work well. I wouldn't say I have a ton of experience with them, but I've definitely run some successful campaigns on Snapchat. And now I'm just kind of getting my feet wet with TikTok. Uh, It's still kind of the wild west, but Mm -hmm. I think TikTok, it does have huge potential as well. It's got the virality potential, but the inability to directly send someone to your website hurts it. I, I really feel Um, Yeah. Well, they don't have any proper places to place a link or any place to like properly drive traffic. It's weird. I can't believe they haven't figured out that they need to do that or they're purposely avoiding it for some reason or another because they want to keep people on the app. Maybe I don't know what it is, but it is frustrating as a marketer that they haven't integrated (laughs) it. I can't see them not knowing that that's an (laughs) issue. So there, there has to be some, some purposeful reason behind it. I can't see them just kind of doing that unknowingly. 100%. And I actually do know that they have their own kind of influencer program behind the scenes where they recruit the influencers and then the companies come directly to them and they get 25% and the influencer gets 75% and can kind of cut off the middleman. So, so perhaps that's the reason. Although even then, they'd probably want a call to action. It's a little confusing. but That's honestly where I always kind of saw the industry going over the last couple of years was I didn't understand how the platforms weren't taking a percentage of what the influencer was getting paid to promote something on their platform. So I always thought that the platforms themselves like Instagram and YouTube would regulate the influencers and you would just pay YouTube and then they would then in turn pay the influencer. I always kind of saw it going there because it didn't make sense how unregulated it was on the platform. Yeah, and I've thought about that as well. And I really hope you're wrong and that doesn't happen. Me too, man. Like, I'm not saying I want it to go there. I've just, I've always kind of seen that as 
the end, the finish line, because it doesn't make sense why the platforms would do that. Yeah. The only thing I can think of is that it's, it's a distraction for them for their real monetization strategy, which is the ads, which drive a ton of revenue for them. And they just want people on there as much as possible. And so like, therefore it would, it would distract from them, keeping them on the actual app by sending them off to other places and distract from their, you know, selling companies ads by selling them influencers as well. So that's the only, true, true. only thing I can think of personally, but I, I agree with you. It's definitely something I'm scared of. I want to talk to you a little more about how you decided which influencer to work with and how much you would pay them. So what did that process look like for you in terms of finding the influencers? Yeah. So in terms of the influencers to work with, obviously followers, engagement play a role, but just the actual influence portion of the influencer, making sure that they're an actual influencer. So if it was somebody who was a fitness influencer, you know, and worked out and encouraged people to work out or an influencer that was a mom and she had a community of moms that followed her because they loved how she raised her kids and they are looking up to her because they want to raise their kids that way. Or a basketball influencer who's teaching people how to play basketball. So I feel like a lot of people just look at the vanity metrics of like, all right, his engagement looks good. His followers look good. And they totally miss the entire community aspect of like, what is the community that they're building? A lot of campaigns and paid campaigns that I've been a part of running with a team when I was a freelancer, a lot of them don't go so well because you're working with people that are just purely models and they just post bikini pictures or guys posting shirtless pictures that have absolutely no substance and people follow them because they're good looking not because they value their opinion and who they are as a person. So I feel like a lot of people just tend to kind of skip over that unknowingly because the vanity metrics are so present in all the softwares you use or anything that anyone says about influencer marketing. You have to be over a 3% engagement rate or 4 or 5%. There's all these metrics that you have to follow, but just realizing that these are real people and real people are following them for reasons and figuring out why or what those reasons are is the key to finding successful influencers. So I love that. And I think you're completely right. And But part of the industry is just looking at engagement rate, looking at followers. So how would you actually go about the process of evaluating their influence? Was it, would you look at followers and engagement rate as well as you know, unquantifiable metrics to determine how valuable they were? Or like, like walk me through you determining whether or not to spend your money on someone. Sure. So, I mean, obviously I'm looking at engagement rate followers, but it just, it doesn't weigh as heavily as the community aspect that I was just mentioning. So I would just like read through their comments and see how engaged their audience actually was. Like, are they commenting really heartfelt, valuable things and they clearly are very engaged with what the influencer is posting and saying or is it just an influencer and engagement groups and you can just tell by there's just a bunch of hard eyes and emojis and one one word of just like hot or sexy you know what i mean you can kind of tell especially with how long i've been in the industry when someone's just using an engagement group or when they have an actual community behind them but yeah so when i'm vetting an influencer looking at the community aspect i look at comments I go on other social platforms. Like if it's an Instagram influencer and they're decently big, like do they have a YouTube channel? Because YouTube audiences show, in my eyes, real engagement. Like if somebody's watching a YouTube video, commenting on a YouTube video, they probably really care what this influencer has to say. And so I kind of look at a holistic approach to all their socials. Like is their, their Instagram's doing well? How is their YouTube channel? And then, okay, do they have a Snapchat audience? Or do they have a Facebook group with a bunch of people in the community and they're constantly posting? It's just kind of going down the rabbit hole and seeing how this influencer is, not just on the platform you're even looking to advertise on, holistically on social media. Makes sense. And and how do you determine how much you're willing to pay them? I mean... As you know, as I know, this industry is very unregulated. There's no pricing standards. I feel like agencies make up their own pricing standards. People that don't have agencies are undervaluing themselves. So generally speaking, 
I have an average CPM for like platforms and stuff that I work with. Like for Instagram, if I'm doing like a story promotion or something, a 10 CPM is something that I kind of like to stick around. But then again, if I find someone valuable that I do like a lot, then I don't mind going over my ceilings. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, I have average CPMs for certain platforms like Instagram, like I mentioned is 10, YouTube, anywhere from 10 to 20. But that being said, I've run campaigns through agencies that the CPMs are around 100 and I've still seen good returns. So as much as I want to give you a direct answer for that, I feel like there isn't one. No, but that's a, that's a good answer in itself. So you have, you know, target metrics that you want to hit, like in terms of CPM, and then, but you're willing to concede if it's the perfect person, you know, based on your unquantifiable metrics of really looking into that person and their community and who they are. I think that's a really good answer as opposed to just like, we need this CPM or we need this much engagement. What are some tips you have for negotiating? You mentioned it's the wild, wild west. It's unregulated. As a result, you can go all over the places we both know. So, so talk to me a bit about your strategy in negotiation. Yeah. So, I mean, part of negotiating is knowing who to negotiate with. There's some people that like are just not going to budge. If they want $15,000 for a YouTube ad integration and you know it's only worth $2,000, I don't even think that's worth negotiating because that $2,000 versus their 15,000, which by the way, somebody is willing to pay or else they wouldn't have those absurd rates is just not worth negotiating with. So I feel like half of the negotiating influencer marketing is just knowing who to negotiate with and who not to negotiate with just based on pretty much their rate. So in negotiation, I always get them to send their rate first. And obviously that doesn't always work out, but most of the time it does. And then you can kind of gauge with their rate how inclined they would be to accept your offer if it's whatever, in a $2,000, $3,000 range. If it's something like I mentioned where they want $15,000 and you know it's only worth $2,000, then that's somebody I would just put on the back burner and not even bother negotiating with. So yeah, the first step is just knowing who to negotiate with. The second step is obviously valuing their pricing because... I mean, a lot of the time they're throwing those numbers out there because like I mentioned, somebody is willing to pay that. So they clearly feel like that's what they're worth. And I'm not even saying that's not what they're worth. It's mm -hmm. just obviously when we're working with brands and companies, they have targets that they have to hit as well. So we just have to make sure it's beneficial on both sides. So it's just letting them know that you understand that they're valuing themselves there, but you also have a client that has KPIs and goals that need to be met for this campaign. So it's just kind of communicating that the company has goals, they have goals, and just kind of meeting halfway. And certain ways that I do that, for example, one tactic I kind of talked to you about last week was the idea of possibly working with them longer term without being too aggressive. Like I've had people on my team that have been aggressive to the point where they promised an eight post deal when we only want one post. And it's like, we're obviously not going to move forward with the eight post. Mm -hmm. So that was way too aggressive. But just in a sense of like, hey, you know what? If this post goes really well, we'd be more inclined to working with you with other clients or even this client if they want somebody longer term. And we could possibly run a post a week for four weeks after this kind of test trial. It's just kind of lingering the idea that this is just the beginning of a relationship instead of this is a one and done type post. And then once we pay them, we'll never talk to them again. It's kind of building a relationship and possibly a longer term relationship. Yeah. And that's, I kind of rambled there, but I, I don't know if that made sense, but <laughs> uh, <it laughs> I did, hope that answered your question. It, it did answer my question and it made perfect sense to me at least. And we, we do we do something very similar there, which is, you know, dangle the possibility of a long-term relationship because that's what every influencer wants is someone that they can grow with. And that's what every company wants is something you can grow with. But we always say, you know, first we need, just need to see what you're able to do. And, and we're honest there and, and the best ones we, we do keep working with. So I think we both implemented a similar strategy in incentivizing these influencers. I want to ask you something that I feel like a lot of people don't talk about. And I feel like it's a really tough part of what we do. So how do you decide on your own pricing in terms of what you get paid? 
And how does that process change over time for you? Because obviously you need to constantly reevaluate and figure out what you're worth. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) it was kind of random. I obviously had freelance rates. And then when I first started offering retainers monthly instead of hourly freelance rates, then I would just kind of take my freelance rate, how much time I thought the project would take me monthly. And then that would kind of be my retainer. And then slowly that just started to grow. And it started to grow based on the amount of ad spend the team and I were managing. So if somebody had a large ad spend, let's say $100,000 a month, then clearly that's going to take up a lot more time than somebody that has $10,000 a month. So I just kind of factor in the amount of time we'd be spending extra on the additional ad spend and price ourselves that way. So it kind of, it formulated from my freelance rate hourly. And then that kind of had, that kind of developed my retainer from the start. And then, yeah, slowly as the bigger clients started to roll in, the amount of ad spend we'd be working with kind of factored into the amount I charged. So did you actually charge hourly and keep track of your hours at the start? When I was a freelancer, yeah, absolutely. It was all hourly, not retainer-based, and then slowly moved into that. The fixed rate and and scaled it up as they spent more. Did you ever do anything performance-based, like percentage of sales or percentage of you know website visitors or influencers or anything like that ever interest you, or were you always... Was it always like percentage of budget or, or straight up like fixed cost? No, I've done a couple performance deals, but they were based solely on conversions and profit. So we'd get a percentage of profit. But the only time I take those performance deals is, is if we were working with a large budget. So I knew that we could actually make a hefty sum on the percentages. Definitely makes sense. So I want to know, what's, what's your favorite campaign that, that you've ever worked on? Favorite campaign? <laughs> I mean, good question. You can give me a couple examples and you don't have one in particular. Honestly, like the most fun I've had on campaigns was that first client that kind of introduced me to the industry. It was just so new and exciting. And I was, I felt like I was talking to famous people all the time. It felt so cool that, you know, I was working with these people that had millions of followers and I was paying them thousands of dollars. That sticks out to me just because it was so new and exciting at the time that I just felt like things were changing for me. So, you know, nothing's ever as good as the first time, but was there something along the way where you like loved it or was it all downhill after that? Was there, was there anything <laughs> where you were like, okay, I'm, I've made it now? Like, <laughs> no, it definitely wasn't downhill after that. I mean, I worked on a campaign with a tech company based out of the UK that had a really large budget. It was a $300,000 a month budget. It was kind of the largest budget I've worked with at the time. And that was fun because then I was part of a team and they were working with large influencers like Kendall Jenner, Scott Disick, Floyd Mayweather, Black China. And it was cool getting kind of dipped into the celebrity realm. Now, after having experience, a little bit of experience there, I wouldn't really go back in that direction. I like working with influencers much more, but that was kind of an exciting time as well because of the size of the budget and the caliber of the talent we were working with. Tell me about working with that caliber of talent. What's it like working with the Jenners or the Mayweathers? I mean, it's just, it's pretty much the same. Like you're talking to their management team. It's just, it's just a longer drawn out process with more people involved. It sounds more exciting than it is because you get to say their name. But at the end of the day, you're just sitting behind a computer, sending emails to instead of one person, maybe four people of a team. And for example, like when they were closing the deal with Kendall Jenner, you had to get in contact with... Like, I mean, they had to connect in LA, which is why it ended up working out. But then they have a council that has to get together meeting before even bringing something to Kendall. It's just a more long drawn out process, which is why I want to go back in that direction. But it was definitely cool to gain some experience in that area. Yeah. And probably helped you get new customers when you're, when you're able to say that. But I understand what you're saying. Like it always, yeah. it always sounds cooler, but really you're just typing in the computer the same way. You were, yeah, dude. At the end of the day, it's the, I'm doing the exact same thing. I'm just, I have more money to spend, and I'm talking with just, you know, a different caliber of people. I guess that makes sense. And did you ever have like a favorite influencer that you worked with? Doesn't necessarily need to be a celebrity. Maybe it's someone like low key who just killed it for you every time, and you kept using them for for different companies. 
Yeah. So I worked on it. One guy that just stands out. He's super nice. Phase Sensei. I don't know if he's a gamer in Phase Clan. I know he was, but he just posts MMA boxing content now. But a couple of years ago, I worked with him. And at the time when I was working with him, I was like, wow, this is a large influencer, you know, and they all had this like kind of way that they would speak and he just seems so down to earth and nice and could have charged us thousands just charged us very minimal like the cpms on what we ran with him were like a cent it was insane how low it was just because he just wanted at the time i was working with the company that made hats embroidered hats and he just wanted a cool hat that just said oos on it and he just agreed to work with us for literally bare minimum just for the hat just because he liked the company and he was just a cool guy to talk to Love it. Love it. There's always those, those hidden gems that are, you know, probably way better to work with for both the company and like, you know, the people who are interacting with them than these mega celebrities that, that catch people's attention. I want to ask you, what's a common misconception about working with influencers that people who aren't in the industry wouldn't realize? Because there's a lot of things people think about, you know, influencer marketing and influencers themselves that are so different than what it's actually like. So so what do you found? A common misconception? Yes. Hmm. I'm going to need a second to think. That's a very good question. I've never, ever thought about that. Yeah, I get a lot of people who like, you know, they think they think it's so much more glamorous than it really is. And like, I don't know, I get people who think that you only really work with the mega celebrities and that. And then I get people who think micro-influencers even make like $2,000, I think for me, maybe the biggest misconception is the price that people think it costs to work with mm. influencers. Because as you know, we can do a lot for, you know, $1,000, $2,000, $5,000. But some people think, mm-hmm. okay, these influencers, you know, even the guy I see that has 100,000 followers, they're millionaires. So to me, that that's maybe a misconception. I don't know. Do you have one? Because like, this industry is so confusing, I think, to people who aren't in it. Yeah, I mean, I like what you said about it like people thinking it's glamorous exactly like kind of how i was just dropping like names of celebrities it sounds cool but it's really unglamorous and not cool and just the amount of communication maybe a misconception is like the amount that goes of communicating that goes into even getting in contact with these people i feel like people just think because they have the budgets to work with somebody like kendall jenner that if they just go to her and offer her two hundred thousand dollars for a story post that she'll just do it because they have the money. But the fact of the matter is like one of the hardest things in this industry is even just getting in contact with these people. Yeah. You can't just knock on their door and pay them and get it. And like, I'm sure you've had it where there's companies that influencers don't even want to work with, you know, they're like, I don't really like this. Absolutely. And even if I'm offering them astronomical amount, like I've offered people sometimes 50, 60, $70,000. And because it does not fit, the brand and the influencer don't fit, they just don't accept. Yep. I mean, and there's nothing you can do. At that point, it's it's really on the client and to focus on influencers that make more sense for the client and maybe not the ones that they are initially targeting. You've been in this industry for a long time now, at least relative to the industry because it's such a new industry and it's constantly changing. So how has influencer marketing changed since you have been doing it since 2018? So, you know, three, three and a half years. And what have you done to stay relevant? Yeah, I mean, I feel like when I first got in, you could kind of just pick some random influencers and it would work well, or even pages on Instagram. I was running campaigns with just pages, not even real people on Instagram. And we were seeing like, okay, returns, you know what I mean? But nowadays that just won't work. So in terms of things that changed, I feel like the industry just kind of became a lot or not the industry, but consumers became a lot more aware of what was happening with influencers and how sometimes they would just pick random products because of the amount of money they would get paid. And the whole industry just became more transparent and authentic with influencers now wanting to work with brands that align with their audience and their core values instead of just working with brands for the lump sum of cash. I mean, there was a bunch of scandals and stuff with James Charles back in the day with sugar bear hair pills, that type of stuff, I think definitely started to shed some light on the industry and what was actually going on behind the scenes. So it's definitely become a lot more authentic and influencers care 
more about their audiences than when I first began. Definitely. And I think it's changing so fast, it's hard to keep up. And and sometimes something negative will get put in the light about the industry and people will think it applies to everything, but not, not necessarily always true. So where do you see the future of influencer marketing headed within the next few years? I mean, we've talked about this off the record, but I definitely see it going in a direction where you're running ads from influencers' Facebook accounts with content that they've created. I think that's definitely going to be a big part of the industry, as well as, I mean, it's just going to continue moving in the direction that it's been moving in. Influencer marketing is just word of mouth on steroids. Word of mouth has been around for millions of years, and it's not going anywhere. So I just feel like other than new platforms being brought about and new ways to advertise on those platforms, I feel like the industry's not going anywhere. I love that. Word of mouth on steroids. Someone should start an influencer company with that name if they haven't already. Um, I should do that. <laughs> that's next. <laughs> so you know, we talked about a lot of interesting stuff and great campaigns that you've run, but obviously there's a lot of failure that goes into any entrepreneurial journey. So I'd love to ask you, what is, what is something you would do differently if you were doing it over again or some failure that you've made along the way? Honestly, I wouldn't do anything differently because I'm happy with where I'm at now. And I'm scared of the butterfly effect or, you know, the domino effect where if you change one little thing, it's going to mess up the entire destination of where you're headed. So I wouldn't change anything because I'm happy with where I'm at now. But I mean, failures along the way, I've spent a lot of money that hasn't gotten clients any results. A lot of testing goes into the knowledge that I have now. So yeah, I've definitely just had some campaigns where maybe you spend $10,000, $20,000 and you don't really see a great return. And obviously the clients aren't happy. But I mean, it's just part of learning and growing in the industry. You can't spend money every time and make a great sum back. There's obviously trials and errors. But yeah, I mean, failures and stuff are just a part of learning and growing. Absolutely. I like that you said you wanted to do it because of the domino effect. But yeah, I think everyone who's ever started anything has had to had to learn and you either are successful or you learn. And I love that mentality. What is the ideal future future look like for you? Not just any company, not influencer marketing, but for you. Next one year, next five year, next 10 years down the line, if everything goes right. Well, yeah, next one year, I'm moving to Bali. I'm going to buy a house and make that home base. I'm, <laughs> currently, I'm located in Canada. So I need to get the hell out of this cold weather and into you know tropical paradise. Once I'm there, in terms of business and stuff, I want to launch another company, a full physical product-based company, not just like an agency or service-based brand. So I'm looking into that as we speak. And yeah, just building, just building companies. And honestly, this changes for me so often. I have such like a monkey mind where I want to try this and I want to do that. And I've just gone to the point where I'm done suppressing that and I'm just ready to kind of taste everything and whatever kind of tastes the best. I'm going to move in that direction, but I just want to just have fun with it, man. Just have fun with the process because I'm realizing that the process is all there is. And as much as we want to get to the destination, even if you have a destination in mind and you get there, once you're there, there's just another destination that you're moving towards. So I'm just trying to have fun in, in the process. I love that. Em- embrace the monkey mind and, and do it all. Exactly. Is this next company going to be out of Bali? Is it going to be, a, or is are you going to sell somewhere else? You mean like my warehouses and stuff if I and, house the product? And, and selling it. What's the plan there? Well... I'm not going to lie. I don't really have a set plan. So that's a specific question. But I just know that in a year or so, and I've already been formulating on some ideas, I don't have any solidified concrete ideas. But yeah, I'm I'm definitely going to be doing something in that realm. But I don't have any specifics. I mean, it will probably be run out of Bali, but we'll, we'll see. Love it. Well, that ends my questions as to, you know, the specifics behind you and, and, the influencer marketing world. I want to get to a section of my podcast called the quick fire round. So I'm going to ask you some questions and you're going to have to answer them in 30 seconds or less. Okay. Do you have any morning rituals that you do to kickstart your day? 
meditating and I try not to go on my phone right away. I try to just give it at least 30 minutes, an hour of just kind of other than the meditation, just kind of chilling and either make a cup of tea, make some breakfast, walk around, read, just try to do anything, but just roll over and pick up my phone. Whose content do you listen to, watch, or read the most? Tom Bilyeu, Gerard Adams, and probably Gary Vaynerchuk. I mean, he's just always on my feed. That guy posts so much content. What would be your favorite piece of content from anyone that you would recommend? Favorite piece of content from anyone? It can be anyone. an article, it can be a podcast um, episode, it can be a book. Oh, it can be a book? Wherever You Go, There You Are was a great book I read on just being in the moment and being present now. I would definitely recommend that. You're not the first guest to answer that exactly the same. I'm going to have to check it out. Really? Yeah. Now you have to, I did, I have a tattooed on my arm, wherever you go, there you are. That's awesome. What is your favorite purchase of a hundred dollars or less? A hundred dollars or less favorite purchase blue light blockers. I got from I buy direct. Those things save my eyes. I have some pair of those too. Yeah. <laughs> what, what is your favorite place you've ever been to? Bali, Indonesia. And that's where we're going next. What is your favorite brand? Favorite brand? Probably Apple. I love Apple products. I'm an Apple whore. As are most of us. Yeah. What (laughs) advice would you give to someone looking to build their own influence, whether that's in the business or influencer world? Just be authentic, be yourself. I feel like a lot of people can tell when you're trying to just garner an audience for the sake of garnering an audience. Just do it for the right reasons. Be yourself, be authentic. And that's definitely the best way. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and share your story. I think you know through your journey of going to college, finding out it's not for you, starting an Amazon business, starting an influencer agency, and Whatever chapter you have next in your life, you know a ton of people can learn from that. And I'm excited to keep up with you and, and really see where this all takes you. Awesome. Thank you very much for having me, man. This was fun. First podcast I've ever been on. So I mean, if I wasn't the best at answering questions, don't judge. It's a learning process. I'll be on more soon. Getting better. And that was Hunting Influence. To find out more about Influence Hunter and how we source micro and nano influencers to exponentially grow the reach of your brand, visit influencehunter.com. And then make sure to search for Hunting Influence in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found and click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Influence Hunter, thanks for listening.